Okay, ladies and gentlemen, ooh, ooh, this is working. Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome. We're delighted that you're here. Uh, my name is John Hamry. I'm uh, the president here at CSIS. I have, uh, I have the best job in the world because I get to spend my day attending conferences like this, and it's just really, really great fun, a wonderful opportunity. We, uh, we have with us today uh, Ambassador Hank Crumpton. Now, anybody that knows Hank Crumpton would be surprised to hear the word ambassador put on the front of that. You know, I mean, this was, he, this was a guy who spent an awful lot of his uh, career uh, in anything but ambassadorial garb or circles. And, uh, of course, became ambassador when he was asked by Condi Rice to be the uh, special coordinator for counterterrorism in the State Department. Uh, Hank, before that, of course, had been with the, uh, with the agency and an enormously successful career. Uh, I've had the great privilege to work with Hank these last several years, and over the last several months, we've had a number of opportunities to talk about this issue we call smart power. Now, this was an effort that we started here at CSIS to say that America uh, needs to refurbish all of the tools in its arsenal to be an effective world leader. Now, a lot of people think uh, that smart power is just a surrogate for soft power. You know, that's, that's not the case. Uh, smart power is integrating in the most effective way all of the tools in your arsenal, and especially integrating your inspirational tools and your tools of intimidation. And I would argue that nobody has pioneered that more effectively than Hank Crumpton. Uh, you know, Hank was really the architect of the uh, campaign that overthrew the Taliban. Probably one of the most innovative uh, strategies that we've ever had is this in this country. And I would argue is the quintessential demonstration of smart power. The quintessential demonstration of it. It used American power, but judiciously and constructively, working with uh, allies and friends that wanted to accomplish a shared goal. And it was a stunning demonstration of what can be done. Now, in the last several months, I've had opportunities to talk with Hank on and off about what does America do in a larger sense as we try to refurbish our tools of statecraft. He is probably uh, experienced more than the rest of us in having a chance to look at this key question. So, Hank, we're delighted that you're here. We're going to learn from you today. And I'm going to turn to Carolyn McGifford, who will be moderating our discussion. But we'll first begin with you, Hank. Why don't you share some thoughts with our group? And we look forward to hearing you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Thank you, John, for the uh, warm introduction. Is this mic working? Yeah. You hear it okay? Okay, good. It's always a delight to come to uh, CSIS and to be with some of my colleagues and some of my friends. And I'd like to thank all of you for joining me. Judge Webster, in particular, honored uh, that you would uh, join us this morning. We face, I think, an unprecedented time in our country. We look at the pace of globalization. We look at advances in technology and societies, not just here but around the world. And we're surrounded by change, change that I believe is driving us to make new decisions about everything, our economy, our social, cultural structures, and also about conflict. I believe that the nature of conflict, the nature of war, 
is accelerating at the same pace as globalization itself. There's a lot of uncertainty, anxiety, I would even say fear. Look at some of the presidential candidates, some of the policymakers, some of the pronouncements they've made, some of the concern they have expressed. Some of it justified, some of it perhaps magnified, exaggerated. Well, why is that? And why do we as a nation, as a society, feel more anxious? When in fact, if you look at some of the economic realities, we're better off than we have ever been. Not just in those economic terms and standards of living, but in terms of the spread of democracy, liberal democracy. And we tend to focus on the media and the media's coverage of the violence and all the negative and some horrible things that are happening every day around the world, but in the scope of human history, there are more democracies, liberal democracies on this planet now than we've ever seen. In Africa, some argue that you might have as many as 20 democracies now, and to varying degrees of democracy, but even 10 years ago, that was unheard of. So I'm an optimist. I am very enthused about our future. I think that we'll be able to make some of these changes, but I'm also concerned that we don't realize what we face and we haven't made the changes we need to fast enough, certainly in the arena of war, of conflict, in the area of power. How do you understand power? How do you apply power? And where do you apply it? And regarding our future, the future of war, I think there are many variables at play, but I'd like to talk about three. Number one is the degree of asymmetry in warfare that we see today. It is unprecedented. For a handful of operatives or even an individual with certain technologies or a certain weapon can have enormous impact. They can bring extraordinary death and destruction to a degree that we have never seen before. Now, there's always been assassination, terrorism, insurgencies, but we've never seen this degree of impact by so few. We think of suicide bombers. We think of, in the worst case, an individual operative with a radiological or a nuclear weapon, or perhaps a tiny pathogen that has been genetically engineered and released into society somewhere. And not only in lethal terms, think of propaganda, how one cameraman can capture one horrible image in Iraq and upload it onto a website, and Al-Qaeda can take advantage of this. I refer to these actors as micro-actors and their impact as macro. Micro-actors with macro-impact. We have never seen this in the history of warfare, and this is just beginning. In fact, this trend is accelerating. It's changing the nature of war. The second example, or the second variable, is the rise of non-state actors in conflict. When we think about the threat today, the enemy, well, number one on our list is Al-Qaeda, a non-state actor. But there are others. There's Hezbollah, there's Hamas, if you're in Sri Lanka, LTTE, 
in Colombia, the FARC, and on and on. That list grows every year, by the way, if you look at the list of foreign terrorist organizations designated by the State Department. Well, how do you understand their power? And how do you engage them, these non-state actors that might not have aircraft carriers or artillery, yet they bring enormous power in terms of their technology? But it's not only the enemy forces that we have to think about in terms of, of their non-state characteristics. Some of our best allies. You're going to swap out? This is not working? Okay. No, it's okay. You want to leave this one on? You're going to double, double up here? All right. Okay. I already forgot what I said. <laughs> okay. okay, that's enough technical gear now. That's, we'll, we'll stop at that. We're not only thinking about non-state actors in terms of enemies or potential enemies, but as allies. Some of our most important allies in the ongoing conflicts around the world are non-state actors. Tribal leaders. Leaders that have religious authority, educators, universities, associations, the media, multinational corporations. The list goes on and on and on. And you think, well, they're not a part of war. This is not a part of conflict as we understand it. And it's really not our role. You talk to some private sector CEOs. It's dirty, it's, it's uncertain, that's not their job. But the problem is, the enemy doesn't think that way. If you're Al-Qaeda, and you're thinking about the private sector, you see the private sector in many ways. You see them, one, as a source of your discontent. The private sector wants to advance liberal democracy, the rule of law, free markets. Well, that's challenging the notion of Al-Qaeda's view of the world. Al-Qaeda and others, their affiliates, think that this global multinational network of free enterprise will bury them. And they're right to be afraid because eventually I think that will be the case. So they view the private sector, this non-state actor, as a source of discontent. They view the private sector as a source of intelligence. They go to their websites. They send people out to case their sites. They try to recruit. And why is that? Because they also view the private sector as a target. 9-11. They view the private sector as a source of infrastructure and funds. These non-state actors, whether they want to or not, they're going to have a big role in the future of conflict. So, the degree of asymmetry, the role of non-state actors, their rising importance, and the third big variable, it's a global battlefield. Tom Friedman, in his book, The World is Flat, talks about capital and labor, how they flow so quickly in this borderless flat world. The same thing applies in conflict. Now, we've had World War I, World War II. They had strategic consequences. But now, at an operational, even a tactical level, you see 
organizations, teams, plotting and planning on one side of the world, executing on the other in a matter of days, maybe hours, and cyberspace seconds. It is a global battlefield. It's exceedingly complex. And more complex when you think about these three variables, their emergence and convergence in this complex global environment. So what are the consequences? Where does this impact us as a nation or as a community of nations? Well, number one, in the arena of intelligence. This evolution of war brings enormous challenges to us from an intelligence perspective. How do you find these micro-actors? And how do you define them? Is this particular group, are they involved in terrorism? Or maybe just supporting acts of terrorism, providing material support? Or maybe they're just engaged in subversion. Or perhaps they're engaged in legitimate political discourse. So along this spectrum, how do you define the enemy? And then once you do define them, once you find them, how do you keep track of them? These micro-actors that are bouncing around with great speed, with great clandestine <coughs> skill, their tradecraft is getting better and better every day. They learn. Well, in this complex global battlefield, how do you discern them? And then how do you find them? And this applies in the homeland also. It's part of the global battlefield. Enormous challenge for us in the intelligence arena. The second major challenge is once you define and engage these enemies, well, which tools of statecraft do we employ? We think of war, we think of the military. Are we structured now to engage this type of enemy in this type of global battlefield? Are we engaged diplomatically? Are we structured, rather, diplomatically to fight this kind of war. The State Department, they're not built for in, in engagement with non-state actors. They're built for engagement with foreign ministries. The Pentagon's not built for engagement in deep, intricate counterinsurgencies, although General David Petraeus has done a wonderful job in Iraq. Enormous respect for him. They're, they're built to engage armies and air forces and navies. What about economic power? We don't think about economic power much in this type of conflict. We did in World War II. Look how we harnessed this nation economically to build all those battleships. I haven't heard much of a discussion about this. Think of the economic power of Hamas. Compare that to the economic might of the G7, the G8. There is no comparison. Why haven't we harnessed this economic power to defeat them? Working with our Palestinian allies who are striving for a Palestinian state and for some degree of liberal democracy in that part of the world. The tools of statecraft, <coughs> military power, diplomatic power, economic power, covert action that can only work if it reinforces and complements a broader policy. What about law? The rule of law is so important, yet 
we're struggling to define the enemy. Is enemy a prisoner of war or a criminal or something in between or some combination? And what do we do with them? We have Guantanamo. There is deep anxiety, understandably, because we have not yet grasped the type of conflict that we're in. And where are we in terms of our laws? Not just here in the U.S. and the homeland, but in terms of international law. And how do we help or how do we learn from our foreign partners, another country that has crafted laws that perhaps are more applicable in this type of war? We're just beginning to have this discussion. So is intelligence is a challenge in terms of instruments of statecraft? And this is important. It's not only statecraft, the nation-state, but it's how does nation-states or how do nation-states partner with non-state actors? How do we structure ourselves to better understand and engage those partners, those allies? And the intelligence piece, this is very important. We spend so much time thinking about the enemy, often we don't think about who our potential partners might be. In Afghanistan, enormous amount of effort trying to understand Afghan society, Afghan tribal leadership, and determine who would be our best partners in 01 and 02. Intelligence and policymakers need to drive this. Intelligence needs to be focused not just on the enemy, but on this social, geopolitical, global battlefield. And how do we map that terrain and use that terrain in our favor when we do identify and engage enemy forces? The role of intelligence, the intersection with statecraft and the nation-state's partners, especially the private sector, is going to grow monumentally. This is a huge change. Just a few years ago, after the Cold War, the peace dividend, there were some very smart, very serious people in this town and elsewhere talking about, well, do we need an intelligence service or a clandestine service? Now we're spending how many billions? So it's about intelligence, it's about statecraft, it's about the rule of law. But most importantly, it's about us. Us as a society, it's about the United States, our country, and our leadership responsibility. What do we want to do as a nation? What example do we want to set? George Washington, remarkable intelligence officer and general, and leader, he understood this. The Hessians that he captured during the American Revolutionary War, 25% of them stayed here afterwards. They said, we've never had life so good as a prisoner. We'll just stay right here, thank you. And they contributed enormously to the growth of our society, our country. These German mercenaries that came here to fight. George Washington understood that he was not only fighting a war, but he was setting an example for a nation. We have to ask ourselves this. Yet we're facing some enormous, difficult decisions. If a single operative with a nuclear weapon is coming into this country to attack us and our families, well, how do you deal with that? And what are the consequences of your actions? I don't have any easy answers for this. I don't think anyone does. 
but we have to have more of a discussion. But you cannot have an informed discussion until you understand some of the variables that we face and look to the future of war and what this means. And where we have had success, you've had good intelligence. And you've been able to develop the kind of partnerships that I referred to, both state and non-state. It's a network interdependence that brings a deeper understanding and a more effective way of dealing with the threats that we face. With intelligence, with diplomacy, with military, with law enforcement in broader, the rule of law, with the private sector, with NGOs. When you think of strategy, you have to think of all these different players. And you also have to think, and this is really tough, you also have to think at a very local level. Globalization, we understand. We read about it all the time. Lots of great examples. But it's not only globalization. It's not only at a regional level in Southeast Asia or Central Asia or NATO. It's not only at a national level, but importantly, it's at a local level. Late Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, he said, all politics is local. Well, I promise you, all counterterrorism is local. In the future of war, it will increasingly be the case. You can have great intelligence, you can marshal all your instruments of statecraft to apply the kind of power that you want, and you can do it perfectly in one valley, the next valley over, it can be entirely different. You've got to understand the nuance, and you have to have the flexibility to make those kind of adjustments. And there are many, many examples of this. Because it's about people. It's not just about the threat or an Al-Qaeda affiliate. It's about the people and the impact in that village or in that valley and what's most important to them. And how we understand that and how we define our relationship with those people, well, that's going to help define who we are as a nation. How do we engage them? It means we're going to have to be much more precise, much more exact, much more nuanced, and most of all, we're going to have to listen to these partners and these potential allies. What are their interests? What are their preferences? What are their needs? And there's a whole lot you can do when that happens. December 7, 2001, in Afghanistan, the southern city of Kandahar fell. It was the last major city held by the Taliban. It was their stronghold. It was the heart of the Taliban. And by that date, in early December, probably a quarter of al-Qaeda leadership was dead. The rest were on the run. Maybe 10,000 enemy had been killed, maybe more. Many more had been captured. Many, many more had laid down their weapons and had left. This was less than 90 days after 9-11. How many Americans were on the ground December 7, 2001? And bear in mind, when you read today's newspapers or magazines and the reference to the American invasion of Afghanistan, how many Americans were on the ground? 410. 110 CIA operatives and about 300 special forces guys. It was about listening and learning and building the alliances with the Afghan people. And you ask an Afghan today, what about that American invasion in the fall of 01? No, it was our victory. It was our war. There were a handful of CIA guys and Special Forces guys helping us. We're very grateful. He provided us intelligence, terrific, precise air support. 
a lot of logistics help, and you were with us in the fight. We respect you for it. It was our victory. It was our victory also. We don't see it as an American invasion. Yet we portray it as that. It's a pretty silly example of how we think of war. That we have to invade. We have to have some heavy footprint when in fact in the fall of 01 that was not the case. I met with Ahmed Shah Massoud. He was the late leader of the Northern Alliance. He was assassinated just a couple of days before 9-11. Al-Qaeda knew he was an important ally with the United States and they wanted to take him out of the picture. So this was uh, a couple of years before that. I had a discussion with him. It was in the hinterlands of Central Asia. Had a long talk about a variety of different things that we were working on together. And at the end of the conversation, he asked me a question that I will never forget. He said, your country, I have great respect for the United States, but I wonder, is your country, do you care more about Al-Qaeda and bin Laden, or do you care more about the people of Afghanistan? That's a pretty good question. And I gave him the best answer I could, which was, well, I'm from the CIA, and my mission is a singular focus, and you're talking to no one else in the U.S. government, so we care less about the people of Afghanistan. He smiled and nodded, a very sad smile, but he, he knew the answer. He was going to determine if I had the gumption to tell him the truth. But he was also, I think, teaching me a lesson. That you've got to do both. You've got to find the enemy. You have to engage. And you have to engage, in some cases, without mercy, without hesitation. But if you don't understand that environment, and if you don't care about the people, the job's not finished. And when we think of conflict in the future... It's going to be exceedingly complex. It's going to require that hard power, that critical 10%. But all that does is buy a space and time for that 90% that has to come in. That whole ray of instruments. And how do we think about war? How do we organize ourselves? How do we fund ourselves? Remarkable. Secretary of Defense... I have enormous respect for Secretary Gates. He comes out and says, I think we need to spend more on aid, more in the Department of State. That's our critical part to this. And I would add, and how do you link that to private sector investment? I have just covered a broad range of topics. And I hope uh, you find some of this of use. I would welcome any comments, any questions uh, that you have. And I sit now, and you want to moderate? Okay, that's great. Thanks. Sure. about uh, the agency's singular focus in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And similarly, there is uh, increased talk about um, increasing special operations to go into Pakistan. Uh, to look for Osama bin Laden and finish that job. Mm -hmm. um, what are the challenges to this strategy, ramifications for uh, Pakistani um, stability and regional stability, and do we know 
the people? Do we care about the people in the way that you were, right. where you were laying that out? Uh, this part of Pakistan, <coughs> overlapping into Afghanistan along the border, poses enormous challenges, uh, not only because of the extreme geography, but also, more importantly, because of some of the cultural, social barriers. I think our understanding is imperfect, but I think that we are able to learn if we approach it correctly. And if we think about those people along the border that have been terrorized by al-Qaeda and the Taliban leadership, al-Qaeda has gone in and killed more than 100 tribal leaders. I think the people there need our help and the help of the government of Pakistan. But it's extra difficult because we have Pakistan as an ally, an important ally, and they've lost hundreds of troops in their fighting. We have to respect their sovereignty on one hand, yet on the other, they are not exercising their sovereign responsibility within this tribal area. And as al-Qaeda is able to expand the safe haven, that enables them to plot and to plan and to train and to deploy operatives in this global battlefield, including into our homeland. So it poses a direct threat to us. In the United States, we have a responsibility to, to protect our citizens. And the best way to do that, I think, is working with the Pakistanis at a local level and also being transparent with uh, uh, the Pakistani government. But at the same time, we cannot wait. We need to address this issue because it's getting worse, not better. And the consequences, if I might add, of not addressing this issue now, when there's an attack in the homeland, and we trace it back to the tribal areas of Pakistan, then what are we going to do? And I have concerns that we could over-respond. And, and, and we need to think about that also in our calculations and our discussions with our Pakistani friends. We'll open up to questions. If you could, uh, there are microphones <coughs> that will come down, and if you could identify yourself and your institution, that would be great. I'll start right here with Arnel. <gasps> right, right here. That was terrific. Many, many thanks, Hank. My question is uh, obviously about Fatah and what we do about the tribal agencies. Mm -hmm. uh, Musharraf made quite clear on Friday that uh, we're not allowed in there, and if we do go in there, there'll be some terrible consequences. So what would be your approach? What would you recommend as to what we should do specifically, step one, two, and three in the coming weeks? Uh, step one is, is a greater understanding of, of that, that social uh, geopolitical terrain, doing that in concert with, with uh, our Pakistani friends, both at a national level and also at a local level, and then I think that we need to build alliances after we understand who are the best potential allies, and with these alliances go in and attack the Taliban leadership and al-Qaeda that are there in these safe havens. And President Musharraf knows well the threat it poses. He's been the subject of repeated assassination attempts. The former Minister of Interior, Shaparo, uh, a very courageous man. Uh, he was just in the subject of an, of an assassination attempt, uh, lost some friends and relatives. Uh, he's from Peshawar. He knows that area. Uh, so we have to be um, cognizant of, of their interests, but at the same time, 
we cannot, we cannot wait much longer. In fact, I think we've waited too long in terms of our engagement in that area. And again, I'm not talking about the invasion that, that many think about. It's really building those trusted networks at a tribal level inside uh, those areas and, and getting to work. I'm going to go in this, in this front row here, is that uh, Mr. Ullman? Thanks. I'm Harlan Ullman here at CSS. And Hank, thanks very much for the talk. Um, <clears throat> the question I really wanted to ask you, but I won't, was what was your reaction to the movie Harry, uh, Charlie Wilson's War? Um, but what I wanted to focus on was really some more specific recommendations. Uh, we have a problem. We have a government here, as you well recognize, that is broken, broken. Um, and the question really is, who is in charge? Is it not a matter of authority, responsibility, and accountability? Take Afghanistan. Emerging freedom was a brilliant campaign and operation, but since then everything has gone downhill. In Afghanistan, for example, who is in charge? Is it ISAF? Is it NATO? Is it CENTCOM? Is it Special Forces Con uh, Command? Is it uh, Karzai? And it seems to me that the profound problem we face here, irrespective of how you define the threat and the dangers, is a government that's still organized in stovepipes based on a Cold War mentality in which there is really nobody in charge south of the president. So could you share with us some of your ideas for how we really put somebody in charge in terms of assigning responsibility and authority to get things done, and also along with that accountability? Do you have some broad thoughts? I'm sure you do. Yes, I think we should have much more of a field of bias. And if you look at all the reform, all the legislation uh, since 9-11, it really has been about Washington, D.C. You have... National Director of Intelligence, a, a new National Counterterrorism Center, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, it's all been about Washington and trying to address those issues when, in fact, if you think about this environment that I've described, if you think about this type of, of, of enemy and my emphasis on uh, local conditions, well, you're going to have to have the authority in the field. That's one reason General Petraeus, I think, is having so much success because he's understanding that and also working with Ambassador Crocker in Baghdad. What a great team. And you have the White House saying, okay, you guys take care of it after a couple of horrible years. And you think, well, then who overseas should do this? Well, there's only one person overseas who is the president's representative who can bring all these instruments to bear, and that's the U.S. ambassador. He's not just an employee of the State Department. He's the president's personal representative. But do we think of ambassadors in that role? Do we select ambassadors to be the leaders in this smart power application of force? Do we educate ambassadors that way? There are some great ambassadors out there, both career and and political appointees who are natural leaders and who have learned and who are applying this, but institutionally, we do not. And if it's not going to be the ambassador as the U.S. president's representative, well, then it needs to be someone else. And again, if we think about 10, 20% hard power in some areas and then 80, 90% soft power, if that's a, a gross oversimplification, well, then who should lead in the field? And that's where you get accountability and you get authority. And when was the last time you ever heard of an ambassador getting fired because we didn't advance that mission? We need to rethink our, 
our bureaucratic structure. We need to have a much more of an emphasis on the field. And when you do that, I'll give you another example. If you look at Southeast Asia, you have a collection of outstanding ambassadors. I'm not sure how that happened, but they are really a great bunch of, of, of leaders. And they have formed a network. And when I was in State Department, we encouraged this, working with the Pacific Command and working with our Indonesian, Malaysian, Singapore partners in the Philippines also. You look at the progress in counterterrorism since the Bali bombings in Southeast Asia. It's extraordinary. They have done a terrific job. And you can argue, well, part of the reason is that Washington's neglect. The focus on Afghanistan and Iraq, well, let Southeast Asia, they, they'll take care of themselves. And they've done a great job. And I think that underscores my point. I take two more quick questions over here, and then I'll move to the other side. I'm Raghubir Goel from India Globe in Asia today. It was a great overview and talk from you. My question is that uh, after U.S. got freedom for the millions of Afghanis, now they are in trouble because what they are complaining is that uh, not only the Karzai government, but Al-Qaeda's are back in their backyards from cross-border terrorism. U.S. has given billions of dollars to fight uh, against Al-Qaeda and terrorism. So many press reports and also think tanks, including former Prime Minister Mayor Bhutto, she said that Pakistan today has become the hub of terrorism and training. My question is today, now President is in the Middle East also talking tough against terrorism. What message do you think you have for the President talking to those people where the terrorism is coming from or supported by those and why the Arabs and Muslims have not come out against terrorism like President and others are doing? So where do we go from here as far as Musharraf government is concerned? Well. I think I disagree with you to some extent. If, if you look at our successes, it's been rooted in our partnerships with our, our Muslim allies. And uh, I think that's, that's the future in terms of how we engage with al-Qaeda and affiliates. And my remarks just didn't apply to al-Qaeda, although that's our priority concern right now. It's any group of discontented individuals that, that sees terrorism as a tactic. So my comments were, were, were broader, not just focused on some of the problems that we see in the Middle East or in, in other uh, Muslim states. I think in terms of what would I tell the president, well, I've told him. <laughs> and uh, um, we've had some, some good discussions. And to the extent we understand what smart power is, to the extent we can reorganize ourselves, and build these interdependent, trusted networks with state and non-state friends, I think ultimately that's, that's the answer. And, and, and on, on this topic, if I may, uh, even our terminology, I think, is, is worrisome. We, we think about, well, we refer to it in our official uh, statements, we, the U.S. government, uh, refer to the jihadist threat. Why, why do we confer such a wonderful title on, on these murderers, these terrorists? The, the, these, these people are not holy warriors. The, 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 the holy warriors are, are, are those American citizens, CIA staff officers, that deployed with me and my teams in Afghanistan. They were fighting for the United States. They were fighting for their faith. Those are the holy warriors, not al-Qaeda and those affiliates. 
we, we've allowed Al-Qaeda to define the lexicon of this conflict. I um, hope that answers your question. Right here in the front. Hi, I'm Pam Hess with the Associated Press. Um, I, I see two immediate pitfalls with uh, a couple of your specific ideas. Um, one, with field control, it, it can get you into a situation like we had with Iran-Contra, where you have people sort of calling their own shots. Um, and the other part of sort of meeting the, the locals where they're at and giving them what they need, oftentimes antithetical to what people can swallow reading, you know, the morning breakfast, because, you know, some of these tribal guys, the, the status of women is, you know, in grave and Sharia law is not something that a lot of Americans can get behind. So if you can address sort of what the downsides are of, of those ideas that you have. And then just magic wand time, um, military, diplomatic, economic, tradecraft. If you could wave your magic wand and pick one, one change or one program for each one of those, what would it be? Well, uh, I think there's a, a, a gap in our understanding in terms of, of a bias to the field. Your leaders have got to have the responsibility of understanding the strategic intent of the Commander-in-Chief, the President of the United States. And decisions made in the field have got to support that strategic intent. And that in terms the longer ter term consequences of decisions made, whether it's the empowerment of women or building the foundations for uh, liberal civic society. But there's an, a natural and understandable dynamic tension depending on what your immediate mission is. If, if you're engaged in combat, you're not thinking about you know, building a school that day. But you've got to engage allies with the understanding that if things go well, well, that's where you want to be in the future. And I think that's one of the things that in Afghanistan, 0102, that we, we tried to think about. So it's not a bias to the field, irregardless of what your strategy is that's, that's coming from Washington, and not only in terms of, of the executive, but also the legislative, and also the, the Supreme Court in their role looking at some of these very important legal issues. And it's, about, it's about leadership eventually. Um, and, and your other question was in terms of if, if I could fix one thing, what would it be? Well, the most immediate concern, I think, would be how do we select and train and provide incentives to the president's representative overseas, the, the ambassadors, and what are their roles and responsibilities. And in concert with that, I think there's a huge role for Congress. If you look at the allocation of resources, so much of that is defined on what that particular congressman can achieve in his constituency, whether it's California or Colorado, and that's driving a lot of these major decisions, and that in turn is pushing us down what I, th I still think is a conventional way of thinking of conflict and resourcing conflict. So Congress has got a, a key role in this also. So th I think those, those two things combined is what I would try to address immediately. Way in the back, and then I'm going to come back down. Right behind you, sorry. Insightful as always. Good to see you. you. Two quick questions. One is, do we have a need for redefining performance measures or metrics that can define success. To some extent, uh, it's easy to define the hard measures of, of power. The soft measures and smart measures are much more difficult uh, 
After all, policy without resources is rhetoric, and we need to be able to put the funds behind these sorts of issues. And secondly, open yourself up a little bit with the lexicon issue. How about the term global war on terror itself? Has it had the unintended net effect of uniting our adversaries when I think we should be pursuing a strategy of disaggregation? Thoughts? Yeah, in, in terms of metrics, it varies enormously depending on where you are in the world. Uh, and so I, I don't think there can be a set scorecard. There can be some, some macro issues that we look at in terms of long-term measurement. Uh, you look at health care. And, and, and think of where Afghanistan is. It, it, it's, it's still you know, very, very primitive in terms of health care. We have so far to go in that particular area. But it's about education. Uh, it's about building liberal institutions, because that's the foundation for democracy and for, and, for, and for free enterprise. And so if you looked at some type of, of formula where you could measure success, I would think about, well, liberal institutions, uh, whether it's the media or, or universities where there's a dynamic educational uh, programs and a range of other issues to come. Uh, because that builds a type of society that is strong and flexible, and it can deal with these types of, uh, of new threats that we see. Your second question regarding uh, the, the name, the war on the global war on terrorism. Uh, I, I don't like that name too much. Uh, Tom Sanderson down here in front, all the way up in front. <coughs> Hey, thanks a bunch. That was a great talk. Thank you. <clears throat> How significant is the virtual world to terrorism in your mind as far as recruitment, radicalization, training, funding? There's a lot of talk about there being thousands of websites that are pro-Al-Qaeda, but how significant is it as a tool? I'm sorry, Tom, which world? The uh, virtual oh, world. Oh, virtual world. Yeah. Uh, enormously important and, and, and growing in importance. Uh, it's a classic example of the global battlefield that I, that I referred to and uh, some very sophisticated uh, communications and, and beyond communications you, you can think of cyberspace as a safe haven because it's not only a means of communicating between Al-Qaeda and affiliates and, and, and other groups that, that use terrorism as a tactic but it's increasingly a source of as you noted recruitment of fundraising, of plotting and planning, uh, a source of subversion, and uh, a lot of challenges in terms of law. Uh, some big challenges there, and uh, the, some of these enemy forces are sophisticated. They understand this. They're taking advantage of not only U.S. law, but international law. Uh, they've made some advancements in their uh, technical trade craft. And uh, that diffusion of knowledge, of know-how, it's spreading, spreading pretty rapidly. So I see it as a, a major issue that we've got to face. Hi, uh, Randy Mickelson with Reuters. Um, I'm wondering how you would apply the lessons of uh, bin Laden's escape from Tora Bora to the situation in, in Pakistan now mm -hmm. and, and in whatever needs to be done there. Do you think it can be done without uh, U.S. forces? And then secondly, um, 
you spoke of a sense of urgency for acting uh, regarding Pakistan, but some of the solutions you discussed, the, the soft measures building tribal alliances, uh, don't seem to sound like something you can do quickly. You can't, can you do that in a month or a few weeks? Well, <coughs> if, if you look at, at Tora Bora and, and, and what are the lessons learned, it goes to my original point that you've got to understand local conditions and you've got to array the type of forces that are most appropriate for, for those conditions. And you also have to have a deeper appreciation for the strengths and weaknesses of our partners, in that case, both uh, Afghan partners and Pakistani partners. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and there are many other lessons I could talk about, but especially the need for great speed and flexibility and precision on the part of, of the U.S. military. I think that's, that's important. And, and I think that since then they've made enormous uh, progress in that regard. It also goes to the point I made earlier about having a bias to the field and having a commander downrange, and now whether it's intelligence, military, diplomacy, you name it, uh, having them able to make decisions pretty quickly on the ground about you know, what's, what's needed. And in terms of the strategy in, inside Pakistan, how would that evolve? Um, it, it doesn't have to take as long as you, as you referred to. You, you can do this in, in, in a matter of weeks, uh, certainly months, I think. But it takes some risk, and it takes a greater understanding of what those risks are. But what's most important is, is the long term. And if, if you look at what we have not done in Afghanistan to take care of that 80-90% I talked about, and there was, I think, a question earlier about aid. Uh, Ashraf Ghani, the former Minister of Finance in Afghanistan, a uh, World Bank official, he estimates that for every dollar in aid spent, maybe 10, 15 cents actually gets to the ground. So we have to think about this because if you do have, or when you do have success in, in this part of Pakistan in a military sense, well, you have to be there the next day to reinforce that success with the hospitals, with the infrastructure, with, with hope. In, in Afghanistan, in the fall of 01, the question that Afghan commanders asked me with the greatest concern, I think. And we talked about a lot of things. They had a lot of questions. How are you coming? When are you coming? But they also asked me, are you going to stay this time? And if, you go, and if you go into the tribal regions of Pakistan now and you talk to the tribal leaders, what can we in the United States offer them compared to the fear and intimidation that al-Qaeda brings to them every day and every night? You've got to address this issue, and not just for the moment, not just for this year, to stop those attacks that al-Qaeda wants to execute here in our homeland and in Europe and elsewhere, but how do you secure those people for the long term to deny al-Qaeda from reestablishing a safe haven? So when you think about your strategy inside Pakistan, it's not only about special forces, CIA going in. 
it has to be in concert immediately with what are the benefits for the people of Pakistan. And to the, to the extent possible, how do you align those interests with the, the nation of Pakistan? Uh, I don't think so. I think that you'll have to have some U.S. forces uh, certainly involve the intelligence, uh, air support, and there's already been some, some cooperative efforts on the ground. So this is not unprecedented. Um, I'm Chip House from the Alliance for Peacebuilding. Um, and one of the things that we've been working on without much success, but we're getting there, is incorporating NGOs and cooperating with policymakers in the intel community, the DOD community, and so on. And there's a lot of resistance on our part. Um, what I would like to ask you, Hank, is what you can do in any of your incarnations to reach out to us, not just us in the NGO world, but the corporate world more effectively than you have? That's a great question. In fact, uh, Dr. Hammer and I had a discussion uh, with uh, a, a good friend, an executive with one of the Fortune 100 companies about that, struggling with how does the U.S. government better integrate its efforts from strategic planning to execution with what I call the private sector, which includes not just corporate America, but NGOs, universities, and not just America, but really worldwide. And it's exceedingly broad and complex, uh, but we clearly need to do more. I, I don't think that uh, we're engaging nearly enough. One is in terms of intelligence. You look at the increased complexity of these issues. There's no way a U.S. intelligence officer can understand that. They're going to be more and more dependent on sociologists and, 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 and people that are involved in science research and others to help understand those threats in the world we face. And the same thing applies in terms of, of engagement. How do you apply those tools and how do you build those partnerships? In short, I don't have a good answer for you. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with that. But I know that the U.S. government needs to do much more in terms of, of, of building those types of networks. And often I encounter uh, private sector executives who are eager to help. They, they want to contribute. But how do you, how do you have that uh, intersection? Now, there, is one, there are several good examples. I'll give you one. Is Overseas Private Investment Corporation, what, some of the work that they're doing, offering loan guarantees and trying to serve as a bridge between U.S. strategic interests using economic power with the private sector. Uh, there are a couple of good examples there, and I'd, I would love to see that, that expanded. But there's much more we could do, certainly in terms of health care and certainly in terms of education. I'm James Stickert, uh, currently unaffiliated. Um, You've done an excellent job of characterizing the subtlety and the complexity of the current uh, terrorist threat. Uh, but you've been addressing largely uh, those threats that are clear and present dangers. Mm -hmm. Could you comment a little bit about how, what the role of intelligence and statecraft is or are uh, with regard to identification and preclusion of this kind of threat arising in other areas. Mm -hmm. 
I think that one of the largest challenges when we look to the future is, is going to be the, the, the impact of technology on societies and the huge opportunities it will give us, but also it will afford enemies and prospective enemies certain, certain advantages. Um, if you look at, at nanotechnology, you look at robotics, um, you look at, at, at biotechnology and, and where these are taking us, quantum computing, I don't know of, of, of any long-term comprehensive effort to try to understand these monumental forces and the impact on societies, the impact on conflict, and, and how, how do we get ready to anticipate that and deal with that. So that's, that's a, a big concern. And another piece, and again goes to my often repeated emphasis for a field bias, is if we are not in the field, if we're not listening with intensity, with empathy, we're not going to be able to pick up on these future threats. Al-Qaeda, Afghanistan is an example. How many Americans prior to 9-11 cared about Afghanistan or knew there was an, even a potential issue there? Well, I fear there are other potential Afghanistans that are scattered around the world, but if we're not listening and learning and paying attention, we're, we're going to miss those cues. And then technology, that part's just going to make it more complex. Right, um, Bill Taylor and Bill Breer down here in the front row. And if, if you maybe do your questions one after another, and then Pastor Compton can Bill Taylor at CSIS. You touched on this in part, but you mentioned uh, all counterterrorism is local. Therefore, funding people, assets should be local or should it be federal? How are we doing and, and what's the process for allocation of counterterrorism funding? Mm -hmm. uh, again, this, this is not, and I talk about a local emphasis, it doesn't mean that you exclude or forget the national level. You have to do both. In terms of, of thinking of this global effort, you must think globally and then regionally. You, you can't talk about Afghanistan and not talk about Pakistan. If you look at Jamaa Islami in Southeast Asia, you've got to talk about Malaysia, the Philippines, and Indonesia. So there's an important regional emphasis here. Moreover, if you look at enemy safe haven, they're often along border areas. These non-state terrorist groups, they understand the nation-state system and understand how to take advantage of it. So global, regional, national, certainly, and we're most comfortable there, but also local. And you have to do all four at the same time. You can't do one and exclude you know, the other three. Because that's the way these threats, uh, that's how they, they run up and down. And now how do you integrate that? Uh, a major challenge, but it can be done. And here in our homeland, if you look at the need to educate and equip and to connect local law enforcement, and, and I, I know that Secretary Chertoff and Charlie Allen and others are working relentlessly to do this, but we have so far to go. And it, it also goes to our understanding or lack of understanding about intelligence in the homeland. And I think this in part addresses some of your question. We tend to view intelligence here as some unrelenting, uh, intrusive Orwellian surveillance system. Well, in fact, the most effective intelligence is the beat cop who understands those 10 square blocks and has built a trusted network. And if something's wrong, then the storekeeper's going to tell him. And from that, he can start working. But he has to understand what's happening 
in the Fatah in Pakistan or in Mindanao. And right now we are not educating those local law enforcement officers to understand that. And we're not linking them up sufficiently into some of our, our national databases. So we've got to work through those four levels, not only in terms of intelligence, but in terms of, well, how do you marshal local civic society? Now, some communities are doing a pretty good job of their own. I think New York City's done a very good job. You look at NYPD and how they're working with federal authorities in New York. Uh, there's, a, there's a good team up there, and uh, I think New York's a pretty good example. Hi, Bill Breer, at, uh, form, formerly at CSIS. I guess I'm still a senior advisor. But um, there's one thing that hasn't been mentioned at all this, this morning, and that is uh, the role of, of narcotics trade in Afghanistan. It seems to me this, this, without dealing with this some way or other, we're never going to be able to deal with financing the Taliban and financing al-Qaeda as well. Another example of the non-state actors that I talked about, you see growing connectivity between terrorist group and non-political organized crime figures. The FARC's a great example in Colombia. And increasingly in Afghanistan, some estimates think that uh, perhaps as much as a half of the economic growth in Afghanistan is attributed to narcotics, the trade of narcotics. And it's a critical problem because not only does that afford al-Qaeda, the Taliban, resources, but it corrupts society. And the Taliban, they know this. This is part of their strategy, that if they can draw those farmers or compel or intimidate those farmers to grow in poppies, that takes them further and further away from the government in Kabul. Well, Sun Tzu talked about you have to understand the enemy's strategy and attack his strategy, not just the enemy, to win wars. Well, we should be attacking that. And why don't we build roads and wells and subsidize uh, local grain crops ten times out of the market price? It's a lot cheaper than putting another battalion downrange. But we're not thinking of conflict in, in those ways. And it's, it's a very important issue. Again, economic power. How do we bring that to bear? And how do we afford those poor farmers in Helmand province the opportunity? How do we help that 18-year-old in Gaza what, what options does, does he have right now? The most, the most important thing on the battlefield, and this is going to be on your, your question, I'll carry on if you don't mind. The, the most important thing on the battlefield, and Thucydides taught us this in the Peloponnesian War, it is pride, prestige, and honor. That's not going to change. With all the complexities I talked about, and how much the environment is changing, the tools of conflict are changing, and how we need to change. There are some fundamentals that we have to understand, some principles, and that is, is at the core of it. Thanks, Barbara Gruy Miter. Hank, um, AFRICOM would seem conceptually to be moving in the right direction, having more of an equal partnership between defense and the State Department. I know you have some doubts about it, but are there some specific recommendations you would make to make that partnership more effective and closer aligned with the kind of concepts you're talking about? Well, I, I have a, a special place in my heart for Africa. I lived there for 10 years in, in, in different countries. and. Uh, I, I, I love the continent and the people, and I think that there are some enormous 
opportunities while facing some unique challenges. I, I do question the emphasis on, on the military aspect. Uh, um, I, I don't necessarily disagree with having a separate command for Africa. I, I think that's probably a good thing given the enormity of the continent, given the complexities. But we should not think of the U.S. policy toward Africa as AFRICOM. If our policy should be much more about the non-military instruments, well, then where is our emphasis there? And I haven't studied this. I can't give you an answer about what's the best alternative other than to have the right kind of ambassadors that are selected and trained and, and given the incentives in these, in these very important countries and to think about economic power and bearing in mind what do those Africans want? What do they need? And not just their national leaders, but, but the people in, in some of these African countries. So that's, I think, an imperfect answer, but I, I hope that helps. Yes, and, and, and Barbara's reference to RSI is the Regional Strategic Initiative, whereby at, at Department of State we pull together ambassadors from regions and then brought in U.S. military special ops, U.S. aid, OPIC, and others to have a conversation about these very things. And, and in fact, I know that initiative continues, including in a couple of places in Africa. And I think that's an important aspect of it. But really just the first steps. How do you bring all these stakeholders together? And then the next step is, well, how do you bring in non-state actors? Uh, and that's got to be tied into in intelligence collection. And that's hard right now because intelligence is geared toward the enemy. Well, we also have to think in terms of allies, potential allies. And then how do you cobble together those types of networks? And who do you work with? That's in some ways an intelligence function. It does not have to be collected from a clandestine perspective. Much of this is open source. And having foreign service officers being enabled, empowered, and trained to go in and seek to understand what the local partners might need. Um, but that's, that's just a, a piece of it. Hank, there's been a lot of talk about how Al-Qaeda is rebuilding in Pakistan and extending its, extending its global footprint around the world. But then you also see other people that are saying that it has been hurt significantly and that it's not rebuilding. I just wanted to get your thoughts on how the organization as a whole, uh, what do you think that their abilities and capabilities are now, not just in Pakistan but around the world, and whether they're capable of launching a, you know, a big mass casualty conventional attack and also with uh, CBRN uh, or WND. Thanks. I think uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, after taking some big hits uh, immediately after 9-11, and uh, they were under enormous pressure, really until um, the, the, the peace accord that the Pakistani government uh, made with some of the tribal leaders in, in the tribal areas. And since then, Al-Qaeda has been able to expand not only their geography, but also deepen their influence in, in some of these areas. And now, I refer to al-Qaeda and the Taliban in the same breath, but in fact, there's a lot of tension within the ranks. This is not a, 
a nice bunch of people. And so there's plenty of infighting and tension uh, within Al-Qaeda. But if you see any organization that has got expanded safe haven, that affords them enormous opportunities in terms of their recruiting and their training, their indoctrination, their planning, their plotting, and their deployment of operatives around the world, given this battlefield. So I am very concerned about this. And yes, I think they still have the capability to launch large-scale conventional attacks in most parts of the world. And I would, I would think uh, that would include the United States. And clearly, that is still one of their strategic intents to attack us here uh, in the homeland. And that's what's driving some of my earlier comments about what do we do and when do we do it. Well, again, al-Qaeda has repeatedly stated and they have demonstrated their intent to acquire weapons of mass destruction. Bin Laden describes it as an obligation. And in Afghanistan, uh, we were able to uncover some anthrax laboratories. We know that al-Qaeda has sought to recruit scientists that can help them advance those programs. So yes, uh, that is clearly their intent and uh, it's of concern. Hi, Ann Scott Tyson with the Washington Post. Um, on the Pakistan border problem, that's festered for so many years, and many now see it as not just a counterterrorism problem, but a counterinsurgency. Um, what has changed that makes you relatively optimistic about being able to address it um, so quickly? Are there elements of the Pakistan government that may be more open to cooperation? And who can carry out operations there? The Pakistan military has not performed well in the Fatah. The tribal forces themselves are weak and subject to intimidation. Um, the, the, apparently, Al-Qaeda has married into some of the tribes, and the dynamic is different there than, you know, say, in a place like Anbar province in Iraq, where they've very much overplayed their hand. Well, uh, let me clarify a point. I said it would take <laughs> weeks or months to get rolling. I didn't say it was going to be resolved in weeks or months. It's going to take years and years, like any counterinsurgency uh, operation will. And counterinsurgency is the right way to think of it. And if you look at success in counterinsurgency, huge, huge part of that is non-military. And that's certainly going to be true in Pakistan. Regarding who is best equipped to go into the tribal areas, um, it's going to require uh, a mix. You have some of the, the local uh, uh, forces uh, that have been recruited from that area, know the area well. The Ministry of Interior, uh, they have got an important role to play, and the Pakistani military also. I think it's going to be a combination of, uh, of forces to, to go uh, into that area. But a, a, if I may underscore repeatedly, you have to do it with local alliances. If you roll in without an understanding of the local environment, without having local allies, it's going to be very hard. And again, if, if you see what General Petraeus has been able to do in Al-Anbar province, that's, that's a very recent, very positive example. And once he was able to get rolling, it, it didn't take very long. And I think the Pakistani uh, military and Minister of Interior might be able to, to, to learn from that, and, and we, we can help them.
Right. The question was, do I see a, a change in, in the government of Pakistan, their attitude? Uh, I have not talked with any senior Pakistani officials recently, but I think that the realities on the ground are dictating that Pakistan address this issue. And, and they have, have, have noted this. They are under threat. Uh, they understand it's about the, potentially the viability of their nation state. And so I think that as al-Qaeda has expanded that the Pakistani government and the Pakistani people, they don't have much choice but to take this on and, and do it pretty quickly. We have time for a few more questions for the gentleman here. Paramiswaran from Ajans France Press. Ambassador, you mentioned earlier about the situation in Southeast Asia where you believe that governments there seem to have brought the problem under control. Uh, how do you see, for example, the situation in, uh, of Jamaa Islamia? Uh, do you think that they have been beaten or is it the calm before the storm? Uh, if you remember, many of the leaders of the September 11, mastermind of the September 11 attacks, had sought sanctuary in the region bef years before the attacks. Mm -hmm. Yes, I don't think I could describe that region as completely under control, and I can't say that Jamaa Islamiyah is beaten. What I, what I did say is there's been enormous progress made in that part of the world. But this is going to be an enduring effort that will take years and years. And in some areas, I think those, those governments with international support are, are just beginning. If you look in terms of, of the educational systems, uh, a lot more needs to be done in, in that regard. But at the same time, the degree of cooperation uh, among those nation states and the intelligence and law enforcement is exceptionally good. And I might note that despite, globally, despite a lot of the increased policy tensions or policy disagreements at, 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 a, at a professional level in terms of intelligence and law enforcement, not only within the U.S. government, but with our, our partners around the world, the cooperation is extraordinary. And the joint operations being launched, and that's a good news story. It's unprecedented what U.S. services are doing with some of their foreign partners and what some foreign partners are, are doing with each other. That's true in Southeast Asia. It's, it's true in a lot of parts of the world. And I think that is one of the big reasons we have not seen an attack here in the U.S. yet because of what these professionals are doing, in most cases, you know, very, very quietly. And, and we, we need to acknowledge that success. Steve Flanagan, the director of our international security program. Mm -hmm. Flanagan from CSIS. Ambassador Crumpton, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the key lessons you've learned in your experience in the ideological dimension of this struggle? We talked a little bit about Islamic websites earlier and, and other, other, other aspects of our efforts. Uh, several years ago, there was a big push on enhancing our strategic communications, but I think gradually there seems to be more and more of a recognition that there's a question of how can we best strengthen the voices of those who are speaking out against the extremists in their own communities around the world. And mm -hmm. can the United States and other members of the international community that, that support the counterterrorism efforts uh, d strengthen those voices without discrediting them? Yes, I, th I think there are things that can be done, and it needs to be tailored to those unique conditions in, in these particular areas. That's one of the problems I think we've had. We have a bias toward Washington, D.C. We're so 
Washington, D.C. centric. And you cannot package a message here and, and have that resonate in all these different lo localities. Now, the things that the U.S. stands for in terms of, of democracy and liberal institutions, freedom of speech, and all these wonderful things, I'm not talking about that. That, of course, is very important. But if you look at a particular issue, and it's not just about ideology, but it's ideology linked to some geopolitical realities on the ground there. And, and that's a, a key part that we have to fold into our enablement of the people that, that, that want to speak out. First and foremost, you have to provide them a degree of security. That many are fearful, many understandably so, because they're under an enormous pressure, they're intimidated. And working with locals, if we can provide them that room to speak out, well, that's one way to enable them. And then also some, some of our, our technical assistance. It's less about telling them what to say and letting them say things that might not exactly agree with our policies, but as long as they're speaking out against terrorism, well, then we need to, to, to help them do that. So a local uh, bias, providing them some of the, the room from a security perspective, uh, enabling them with technology, bearing in mind they're, they're not going to repeat U.S. policy. This is not about advancing U.S. policy in that part of the world. It's about providing them freedom of speech. And there's a big distinction there. Uh, I think we're coming to the end of our time. I, we, we were very fortunate, CSIS was very fortunate to have Ambassador Crumpton brief our commission on smart power this past summer, and they were very taken with a number of the things that he... Um, that he talked about and, and many of the themes that he brought up today. So I'll just end with a question. Um, the point of the report, the target of the report is the next administration, regardless of who wins the election. And so if you were advising the next president, um, Democrat or Republican, on counterterrorism policies, what would your touchstones be and what should we be looking for going forward? Um, Rethink the government budget in terms of national security. And you have to do that in concert with Congress, of course. But that's got to be geared to what are our objectives overseas and what do we want to achieve overseas. And also going back to my opening comments, how do we want to be perceived? And that goes to the questions of, well, what kind of society do we want to become? How do we want to evolve? What are the core values that we must hold on to in a very dynamic, rapidly changing environment? That's really the first question. And then you think about resources and, and structure. And, again, the risk of repetition. How do we build these global interdependent alliances to understand the issue, to bring like-minded people together, to understand and to defeat the kind of threats that we face? And bearing in mind that we've never lived in an era of such prosperity. We've never lived in a world where you have so many liberal institutions moving the right way. And while I have expressed some deep concern about specific issues, the last thing we want to do is have a policy based in the sense of fear. I think it should be just the opposite. There are enormous opportunities ahead of us, and we can make great advances. If we understand the complexities of conflict, and we understand the changes that are coming, and I would encourage our next president, whoever he or she might be, to keep that in mind.
Thank you. Thank, thank you for joining.